0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today I'm talking with Harini Nagendra. Harini is a professor of sustainability at Azim Premji University in Bangalore, India. She uses a wide range of interdisciplinary approaches from natural and social sciences, including satellite remote sensing, biodiversity studies, archival research, GIS, institutional analysis, and community interviews. And she does this to examine sustainability in the context of forests and cities, uh, primarily in the global south and in India. We talk about her unique interdisciplinary training, her time working with Eleanor Ostrom, her focus on community-level solutions to forest and urban commons issues. We also discuss sustainability narratives. And some of the biases within the global science system, which underrepresent Global South researchers and ideas. Particularly, we discussed two of her recent articles one titled The Global South is Rich in Sustainability Lessons, which was a commentary published in Nature in 2018, and one titled The Urban South and the Predicament of Global Sustainability, published uh, this year in Nature Sustainability. Uh, we also touch on how she focuses on local issues in her city of Bangalore, and her efforts to do practical research that makes an impact throughout the city, uh, although that work may not be published. Uh, this includes how she incorporates students into her research and change making at her university. So yeah, I really enjoyed this podcast with Harini, she's a very clear and critical thinker, and I definitely encourage all of you to, to check out her work. So please enjoy my conversation with Harini Nagendra. Over the last couple of days, I've been looking at your, at your some of your recent work and and also your your bio on your university page, and it says there that Professor Nagendra is an ecologist who uses methods from the natural and social sciences, including satellite remote sensing, biodiversity studies, archival research, GIS, institutional analysis, and community interviews, to examine the sustainability of forests and cities in the global south. and And to me, that's a pretty diverse uh, set of of methodologies uh, and it also combines two kind of distinct contexts: uh, forests versus versus cities uh, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on your academic background and how you kind of came to have this this wide toolbox that you use um, and how you came to focus on those those two different contexts
1: yeah, sure uh so my academic background has been i think a constant sort of wandering journey I have an undergrad degree in microbiology, chemistry, and zoology. So very different disciplines. And uh, then uh, I came in for, so the Indian Institute of Science, where I did my PhD, had uh, just then launched an integrated PhD program, which is supposed to be a master's and PhD. And uh, I joined that. At the time, it had seven biology departments, and we had access to all of them for our PhDs. Of that, six were doing different forms of molecular biology, cell biology, molecular biophysics, microbiology. And that seemed like the more natural home for me because of my undergraduate degree in microbiology. So I did that for two years and I did one project, a six to seven month project trying to clone some things into a cell. And uh, I hated it. Absolutely hated being in the lab, working all night, sort of. Getting out of the lab in the morning to find out the sun is outside, and uh, then purely by serendipity, I stumbled into the ecology department. I knew a couple of people there, went for some talks, and I, s- I felt that this was a place I wanted to be in because they were talking about very different things in the in my department where I did uh, the ecology department at the Institute of Science. So they were saying that uh, India has a number of challenges. Here's the ecology of the country. Here's a way to do low-cost science with meaningful impact. So that, to me, seems so much in tune with some of the things I was frustrated about with doing molecular biology of the kind that I was doing. So I moved into ecology. I did a PhD in ecology, but uh, without doing any coursework in ecology, because all of my courses that I've taken for my master's portion of my integrated PhD came from molecular biology, largely. So I taught myself statistics. I wanted to use remote sensing. I had to teach myself remote sensing. We didn't have the software, either statistical software or remote sensing software. So I had to use open source software and teach myself how to code. Uh, I had to teach myself a whole bunch of things, just landscape ecology, which was the framework that I used for my PhD, trying to understand how spatial patterns at landscape scales influence biodiversity which is what i did for my phd and trying to see how you can use satellite images to set up a monitoring system for india's biodiversity and uh, this was the time that uh, the convention on biological diversity had just been signed so this is 1993 1994 and india had to come up with a strategy of how to sample its biodiversity so that's essentially what i was looking at for my phd so it was a great learning period, a lot of exposure to techniques and methods that were very diverse from remote sensing to the spatial statistics, to the landscape ecology, to the just ecological thinking about biodiversity and the structuring of biodiversity. And uh, I mean, it was a great time. I I worked with uh, Professor Madhav Gadgil and I had very long conversations with him because He had never used landscape ecology in remote sensing either. So we were bouncing ideas off each other, reading books, reading papers. So that was one part of it. Great learning journey and a shift from microbiology to ecology. And I enjoyed that thoroughly. But again, towards the end of this, I started looking back on my PhD and realizing that most of the structuring of biodiversity or the changes in biodiversity that I was seeing in the Western parts of India was actually because of human influences and uh, there was nothing in my training that really allowed me to address why certain areas for instance were being well protected, certain areas were being restored, certain other areas were degrading over time. So I realized I need to get a better handle on institutional processes and human processes. So I was wondering what to do. I finished my PhD looking out for a postdoc. And just at that time, uh, CIFEC, the Center for the Study of Institutions, Populations and Environmental Change, which Elena Rostrom and Emilio Moran had co-set up at Indiana University, had an ad open for a postdoctoral researcher to set up their South Asia research. And they were looking at forests and they had this very nice tagline on their website which I completely resonated with at that time We said we want to understand when people can be positive agents of change and when are they negative agents of change. So I mean I got really excited by this ad. And the other thing that really excited me was the fact that it was in Nepal and in India. So I didn't I mean just no spending all of this time learning about the ecology of India. I didn't want to go off and work in a temperate forest. Because it's a completely different structuring process, it's different ecological questions of interest. So I applied for this position and I had a phone interview and Lynn told me later that she was a bit nervous hiring me because she said she'd never done a phone interview and hired someone unseen. You know, this is the days, this is uh, September 2000, so well before Skype uh, and video chats came up. And I was a bit nervous going in because I had no idea who these people were. I really did not know about Eleanor Ostrom's reputation or the work that she did. It's just that the call looked interesting. And that, there I was, and there I landed up. So, when I, <laughs> yeah, so it is it is a journey of serendipity, I'd say. And, you know, so I landed up there. I spoke to Lynn. I spoke to Emilio. And essentially what they did, which is very nice of them, uh, considering that I came and, again, they didn't know anything about me, was to say, here's what we have done in South Asia before, which was the IFRI network, right? So they had a lot of data from Nepal, especially looking at institutions and forests, but based on rich, detailed ground studies. And they said, now we want to set up something which is more landscape scale with remote sensing, bringing all of this together with some interviews, with more in-depth research, and then try and figure out how to set up the India component of it so here's the the brief it's as open-ended as this do whatever you want to so that really helped we had a, a, a lovely bunch of people there and uh, I got so I actually started working at the time because I was setting up the South Asia network at, and setting up things takes time so I had a lot of spare time you know while while things were moving slowly around that and there was a love great group of younger scholars working on Latin America. So there was Jane Southworth who had just finished her PhD and was interested in looking at landscape techniques to look at Honduras and Guatemala. And there was Catherine Tucker who was looking, who had a very deep anthropological understanding of these. And there was uh, Dala Munro who shared an office with me and she was looking at the spatial econometrics of uh, landscapes. So we, four of us got together. We'd have a lot of discussions go out over wine and chocolate and talk about uh, (laughs) these ideas of how to link spatial econometrics, anthropology, geography, and landscape ecology. And it took us, I think, a couple of months, three months, just to develop some common language and understanding between us. So, for instance, anthropology relies on a very deep understanding of one location. And uh, looking at, for instance, one community in one village, and you know for sure that you know how they think and feel and interact about forests. But that doesn't mean you want to extrapolate to another community, which might be, let's say, five kilometers away in the same landscape. But remote sensing is all about extrapolation. And we're making sweeping claims, uh, or landscape ecology is all about extrapolation. We're saying the spatial pattern here is similar to the spatial pattern there. Therefore, the process underlying process is probably similar in two parts of the landscape. And then, you know, you'd have this whole conversation where someone would say, no, it's, you can't say this because you haven't spoken to those people. So it was fascinating because we each came with our own very uh, well thought out and well defended positions on how to do landscape scale work, but with also with a lot of deep respect for each other. I mean, each of these are wonderful scholars in their own right. So I think we, we were also very good friends, which helped a lot. So we talked through, argued through, collaborated with, and did a number of papers. We have a series of four or five, I think, very, very uh, interesting papers to me because they just, they were not methods where we did A plus B plus C, as in, you know, here's your piece and here's your piece and here's your piece, but we actually sat down and said, what's an interesting question to ask and the four of us can ask together. So we did the series of papers, but those, that process, I think, was very important for me because that transformed my way of thinking. And then I started approaching the Nepal research in pretty much the same manner, and uh, looking at what we could do with the Nepal ethi studies on the ground. And uh, that, so in the Nepal work and the India work, it became then extremely collaborative with Lin, and that, of course, opened a completely different world for me—the world of institutions. I'm trying to think about how people organize themselves and uh, in Nepal there were a number of institutions that people used, with community forestry there were buffer zone forestry which was close to the park edge there was the leasehold forestry program all of these were different variants of how people were uh, interacted with each other within a polycentric structure where the government allowed certain things and disallowed certain other things so I had the chance to have Very long conversations with Lynn about polycentricity, multi-level governance, looking at how do you understand institutions and then how to understand. My interest, again, because of my base, I think, as an ecologist, was always in looking at what's the ecology here? Does this mean that uh, buffer zone forestry has has a different ecology or do the people prefer certain kinds of species? as opposed to community forestry. So I think linking the ideas of ecology and spatial structure of landscapes along with the community in institutions work was something I found very interesting. So that's when I started adding a lot of social interviews. And, uh, you know, just to give you an example of a couple of things we looked at, one of the issues we found was uh, there was just outside the park in Nepal, the Chitwan National Park, there were a series of community forests at the boundary which were called buffer zone community forests because they were the, at the park buffer zone. And there was a lot of discussion, it was UN-funded pro- uh, program about how successful these buffer zone projects were because tourists would come in, give their tourist money to the people managing these buffer zone forests, to the communities. And then the communities could protect villages and turn the agricultural land back into forest and get a lot of money from tourist income. But what we found when we looked at this spatially is there's a main road that runs along the park boundary, and uh, it gets worse and worse as you go away from the park main gate. So the the park buffer zone forest right at the tail end of the gate got very, very few tourists and barely any money, and was not doing so well. Not surprisingly, in terms of its forest recovery. Because there wasn't any money coming in to support the community. So of course they had to do more agriculture. They had to cut down the trees, you know, stay productive in some way, earn their livelihood in some way. So the once the, the two forests near the main gate were the ones that everybody talked about. But of course tourists would come there because why would you go along a bumpy road for another four hours just to see another forest at the end of the place when you could see a forest right next to, to the main gate. So you, We really looked at how spatial analysis and an analysis of ecology could be related to an analysis of how communities think and work and act in the program. So the idea, I guess, along the way, because of the lack of formal training in any of these disciplines for me, of being problem-centric rather than method-focused was a very natural one if I'm thinking back. And uh, also... I think good fortune of having a number of collaborators who've always been very generous with their time and willing to teach me different methods of looking at things or have long conversations about why they use some method as opposed to another method. And uh, with that also came, I think, a somewhat of a shift in terms of not just the method of research, but what does one do with this research? So, one of Lynn's very strong principles with going into any landscape was not to be a white colonist, you know, not to, not to parachute into a landscape from the US, study it, make your recommendations and zoom out, but always to work very closely with a well embedded, really respected local collaborator who knew the landscape very well and to collaborate with them on an equal footing. So because of the IFRI network, there were really close collaborations with uh, Birendra Karna and Mukunda Karmacharya, for instance, in uh, Nepal. And a lot of Nepali PhD students that came and worked with Lynn. So I was working with Birendra and Mukunda and got a lot of, in, you know, their insights into the landscape. And they knew the landscape in a way that you just know because you've spent so many years there. And they're from the region and they know people and how, they, how people in Nepal think and view and manage their landscapes. Similarly, in India, there was uh, Rucha Ghate, whom I still work with, who uh, spent a lot of time in the forests in Maharashtra, setting up the Ifri network there. And she'd been working there for 20 years before I knew her. And so, again, that very deep knowledge of the local landscape that um, it's so—it's so it's not just the methods they use, but also the knowledge, I think, that they had on the landscape. And that is, I mean, like, just working back and forth, I guess, this is the journey. You know, what I... I mean, it's an interesting question you're asking because I'm sort of looking back now and I hadn't looked back at this before, but I'd say the, the lack of formal training has been a very freeing thing because um, you don't know that... I mean, I'm really not trained in anything. So I pick up new things along the
0: way. I have a f- couple of things I would like to follow up there. And one of them is perhaps this idea that the lack of formal training opens your mind a little bit more when you come into a new discipline or a new method or a new context that you're not bounded by the traditions of that method going forward, but you could see it with a a more open mind, which might lead you to make the connections between the context that you do have training in and and that other context and and be able to better look at the links between them. One of the questions I had was, you know, what have been the challenges, you know, when you think about what were the kind of hardest parts for you, it seems like you were more self-educated in these different disciplines as, as you engage with them as you move forward into your career so one is what, what were those challenges and then the other was i was reading also it says in your bio that you were the recipient of the 2017 web of science india research excellent award for the most cited indian research uh, researcher in the category of interdisciplinary research so i mean certainly the interdisciplinarity part as you just explained has been a huge A huge part of your career and and rather successful. But what is that balance between the need of having a, a strong rooted disciplinary education going into a scientific career versus having a more, as you said, that you have a more problem and solution oriented approach to science, which is maybe shifting uh, a bit the way we want to view how the academic si- uh, system approaches sustainability problems To look more at specific problems and and all the disciplines kind of surround a problem rather than disciplines themselves uh, looking at, looking at siloed issues yeah,
1: so these are i mean fascinating question i think i think you're right i think the the lack of training frees you up the challenge as you rightly pointed out in you know, sometimes some of these disciplines are hard to get into so i find if i look back i didn't really have a good uh, high school training in physics or maths. And that is something that trips me up even today. So remote sensing, for instance, a lot of the remote sensing has been about understanding the underlying physics or the underlying maths behind certain the use of certain approaches. Similarly with the statistics, the spatial statistics especially. So if I look back on the early statistics that I used, I think in some of my approaches, I tend to cringe because that was a time when people were using simple statistics. But now if I think of the fact that some of these are very complicated problems. And, you know, you now have the statistical tools to tease apart the influence of one variable as opposed to another and set up these very controlled post-facto comparisons, you know, of of why one variable is influencing something in another way and maybe another one is adding on to it. Or So I don't think, I think that remains a challenge for me, understanding some of these, where where a good where a better knowledge of maths or better knowledge of physics would help me. The way I've dealt with this uh, in the past is having really good collaborators. But uh, many of those collaborators are not uh, are sort of friends I made in the US or friends I made outside India, and uh, that helps a lot. But that's not sufficient for some of the problems that we address. So for instance. Uh, I had uh, a long collaboration of about four or five years with a very good group of landscape ecologists in Italy, and we were looking at Mediterranean landscapes and trying to see how spatial structure is at different hierarchical scales in human-impacted landscapes of the Mediterranean. And that's that's been great work. I think for me, it broadened my boundaries of landscape ecology because my collaborators, uh, Paula Mairotta, Mai for instance, from the University of Bari, is really good at these spatial statistics and uh, But we wanted to take the same methods and move them back to India. And in uh, tropical landscapes, the biodiversity is just at a different scale compared to the Mediterranean landscapes, which have a comparatively simpler landscape structure, simpler biodiversity. We haven't been able to do that because some of these collaborations are challenging to do cross-country. And I just don't have that expertise. So there are challenges. There's stuff that I know I should learn I have on my desktop uh, screen in my computer for the past two years, um, a set of uh, documents on how to teach yourself R and how to teach yourself Google Earth Engine, both of which I really want to teach myself at some point, but I just don't have the time also. I mean, I I think that's the reality of, uh, you know, as you go further up in the science career, you get more and more involved with administrative work, right? So just getting the 6 months to, for instance to learn new software, and new coding, which I had time for in my PhD, I do not have the time for anymore.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's many of us who are in that same situation.
1: <laughs> exactly, right. So now that has, you know, you try and get around it. You hire a good, really good postdoc and they go off and do this, which is great. But it frustrates me that I don't know what the postdoc is doing in terms of the nuts and bolts of the, you know, what are they do? Why are they doing something there? Or what is pattern there? But I guess this is sort of part of the, the learning curve.
0: Uh, It was interesting to hear you say that you have a problem-oriented approach to, for example, sustainability problems rather than a disciplinary-oriented. Can you touch on that? Like, what exactly Mm -hmm. you mean by that? And and how does that kind of fit into maybe a traditional academic structure? So how we organize the universities into disciplines and not by problems?
1: I think that is all sort of a... fitting into the traditional academic structure is a perennial challenge, I think, for people who are interdisciplinary. And I've been fortunate because... um, I mean, I call myself an ecologist because I don't know what to call myself, frankly. Uh, Do I call myself a social scientist? No, because I don't have the training in that. And uh, do I call myself a geographer? I haven't, you know, I think tend to think more like a geographer, I think, in many things because I tend to think of scale and space and structure, spatial structure. But uh, I tend to think of geography much more from the ecology and the species and the human species interactions perspective. So I call myself an ecologist because that's the closest home I can find, not because it's a perfect fit. So that said, I think I would find it very difficult to apply to an ecology department definitely anywhere in India and probably anywhere in the world. Um, I'd probably find it easier to, to apply to a geography department or an environmental social sciences department. Because it's just an easier fit. Because I think these are much more interdisciplinary departments. I had a, an unconventional research career, so I did a three-year postdoc at CyPEC, and uh, then I applied for and got a five-year fellowship from ETH in Zurich, which was this Branco Wise Fellowship. So it was a fellowship set up by Branco Wise himself, a very influential philanthropist in the in Switzerland, and uh, I was one of the. The, the first batch of recipients and the fellowship in those days is extremely experimental and it was aimed at categories of researchers from anywhere in the life sciences who had some interface with society. So it is a five-year fellowship. You could live anywhere and work anywhere. And work on anything, you set up your own proposal and they give you money every year. So you set up a proposal and said, I need so much money this year to work on this. It was very dynamic and I think in a five-year period it, that's really useful because when you're starting new work you don't know you can't set up a five-year proposal and say, in year five, I will do this. Year one determine year two, determine year three.
0: Right. I think that type of setup would be pretty rare now.
1: It, it's, even that fellowship has changed now and become much more rigorously structured. You know, I think we were really fortunate to be the first batch and it was extremely experimental. And Branco himself, he passed away several years ago, but Branco was extremely open to being very experimental with his money and taking sort of a chance on us. And a number of people, you know, we all did very different things. So that five years gave me, uh, I think, a great setup. I moved back to India, uh, did all of this, started a lot of forest work in India, then started some urban work. And then I got a similar five-year fellowship from the government of India, Department of Science uh, and Technology, Brahmanajan Fellowship. So that was another five-year fellowship. So I essentially spent 10 years more or less as an independent researcher. I freelanced through an academic institution called ATRI. It's a research uh, ngo in bangalore but it's um, works across india and uh, i had I actually worked from home i had a setup i wrote grant to them and i had people working at hq but it's the other end of bangalore and traffic in bangalore as i told you today is horrendous. but so for 10 years i could do this and stay outside the academic structure these grants didn't care where i published and so i published across the place and picked up research proposals research uh, questions that were of interest to me when the second grant got over, so sometime around two thousand thirteen, was when it could have got challenging for me. As I said, I don't fit into traditional academic structures. You know, where would I apply to in India? And in India there are very few good so geography in India is largely a social sciences. And so it would have been very difficult for me to apply to a geography department because I don't have a PhD in the social sciences. And that that is very defining in the Indian academic situation. Where is your PhD? Is it from? Is it from a natural sciences discipline or a social sciences discipline? but again i mean i think serendipity the premier university which i joined is a depart is a university that doesn't have departments we have schools we have the school of development for instance which is where i'm based and we have social scientists and natural scientists and they don't really care i mean in fact they they would prefer that you don't identify yourself with a discipline because we encourage a lot of interdisciplinarity and uh, collaboration and problem focused research so yeah it worked for me i Turned out to be a natural home, and uh, you asked about the the Web of Science uh, Clarivate Award. So I didn't know this award existed till they called me up. It, I think it's very interesting because it's um, it's it's one of those awards that goes that uh, they come up with based on a computer search of citation metrics. And uh, I'm still not I'm a bit ambivalent about what I think about something like this because uh, well, as we all know. These citation metrics have their uses, but they also have their, uh, you know, you can their big flaws, right? But it, it, it turns out that they have a category called interdisciplinarity precisely because it's so hard for interdisciplinary researchers to find a home or a set of journals that they publish in. And uh, yeah, but there it is. It's it's been uh, it's been something that I've been fortunate to do. But I see students and postdocs, PhD students of mine and postdocs researchers who work with me having a huge challenge while they start looking for jobs Uh, they come because they're very interested in interdisciplinarity themselves so the same kind of uh, interest drives them but in the conventional academic atmosphere it is very difficult to get a job in for instance if if you're a sociologist and you're looking for a job in a sociology department, then you should have done pure sociology. But if you do environmental sociology, they say, "Ah, but where's your contribution to sociology? This is all environment stuff." Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I think the award is certainly—it's certainly a testament <laughs> to the the work that you've done and over your career. And it, it is interesting, though, how they categorize. Uh, you know, the different researchers into into these boxes of interdisciplinarity. I mean, what is how do, how could we even define interdisciplinarity? Is it something that's a sum of its parts or is it more than the sum of its parts? Does it have a, does it have <laughs> right. an, does it have emergent properties? Right. When you bring people together with, with two unique perspectives, does there emergent right. properties there which come out and emergent ideas which which you wouldn't get from from other from other types of collaboration within the disciplines or which are more closely related to each other. And then I think that that idea leads nicely into what I wanted to ask next, which was, which kind of builds on this commentary piece that you wrote in nature last year in, in 2018. And it, it talks a bit about, um, you know, broadening the perspective or the concept of sustainability and how there's, how there's different views for framing the narrative around sustainability. And the piece touches on, um, and how a lot of the education systems, even in India, kind of take a more Western framing that uh, there's environmental de- degradation, and this is in large part due to overpopulation or, or people uh, as the problem. And in the piece, you, you can ex- expand on it uh, more yourself, but you, it seems that you put a more people forward approach uh, that people are rather the solution than, than the problem. And we need to rather change the narrative around empowering people to find environmental and sustainability solutions.
1: The, the piece was motivated by. Uh... A lot of frustration about the availability of research and teaching material for us. So I teach in a school of development, as I said, and uh, one of the things we're teaching is for students who do a master's in development and they most of our uh, teaching is based on uh, educating practitioners or future practitioners or future change makers, however you want to define that. So, some of our students do go on, of course, to higher research and PhDs and other masters, but a significant chunk of them go off to work in the development sector in India. Right? And you're, so you're looking for material that would be relevant for them to work in, let's say, an Indian rural setting or an Indian rural setting where there are people getting together and tackling really difficult tasks, you know, sanitation or air pollution or uh, the lack of uh, medical infrastructure, things like that. And you're looking for framing problem, framing literature to, to help them understand how to view sustainability. Because there's a lot of action-oriented parts of our curriculum. They go off and do things in the field and that's all fine. But what can we teach them as academics? It's how to frame sustainability. But what material is available for us to teach them with, unfortunately, is all Western material and uh, books on sustainability that start with Rousseau. And I mean... <laughs> Rousseau is completely unintelligible to a student who, again, from our university, we specifically try and uh, encourage students from underrepresented backgrounds, right? So many of our students come from rural India. This might be their first exposure to a program that is taught completely in English. They're struggling with the language. They're unfamiliar with the urban context. And then you throw them with Rousseau or you throw them with Shelley. It doesn't make sense. It's not a starting point for them. And uh, so it started, So the piece emerged out of some frustration about these pieces. And then looking at a lot of the underlying thought with a lot of these pieces is the idea that population is the problem. And therefore, places like India are the problem because we have this huge population. But of course, if you look at sustainability footprints and consumption patterns, it's, uh, you know, if you look at the consumption pattern of someone in the U.S. versus someone in India, there's a huge variation. And within India, if you look at someone in the city as opposed to someone in a rural area, there's a huge variation in consumption patterns. So is it just as simple as there's overpopulation in rural India and people need to stop having so many children? I, I mean, obviously not, right? There's a reason why they have more children in rural areas. It's because the death rate is high, it's because life is um, unpredictable and they need to sort of have their insurance for the future. And often children are their insurance for the future. So the lack of anybody trying to put their, themselves in these people's shoes who are making hard decisions every day and often doing incredible things with the constraints that they have, you know, to save uh, trees or save forests or set up complicated irrigation institutions in rural parts of whether it's Indonesia or Chile or India. The lack of respect for that and some of the sustainability literature really frustrated me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this piece sort of came out of that. But also, I think uh, it's it's very clear in a lot of the commons literature. If you look at uh, some of the the things that we do know about how people manage local institutions, we know that uh, population is a strength up to a point and then it becomes a challenge. So when you have too few people managing a community forest, for instance, The forest tends to get degraded because you can't protect your forest efficiently and effectively. You can't enforce the boundaries. You can't protect it from other people coming in. You can't restore a degraded forest, plant it, maintain it, You know, do all the things that you need to have this forest come back. If you have too many people, you can't have an efficient community meeting. Things break apart. There's no cooperation. So there's an optimal size of the number of people that can get together and drive a local institution efficiently. There's enough people to do all the work and collaborate, but there's not too many people that you, you know, that everything becomes chaotic and breaks apart. So we know that population, I'm not saying that population pressure is not a problem, but we know that it can also be an asset and we see it as an asset in so many places. So it was with that really in mind that how do you think of, you know, that a second part of Uh, the piece was also to draw on the fact that there are so many imaginations and diverse worldviews out there which uh, for instance I learn so much about in cities every day. So it started with this uh, narrative of a woman that uh, I mean really struck me. So she lives in uh, Dhanalakshmi who lives in a slum in Bangalore and I went there about five years ago. She had this lovely tiny tiny kitchen garden in the front of our house. It was on the road created with, uh, you know, number of thorny bushes to fence it off and protect it from the chicken. And she had grown a number of little things there, you know, greens and even some cereal. And I went back three years later and the road had widened, taken away her little kitchen garden. So I went in to see her and she had five pots along her wall and uh, all the pots had uh, tulsi, which is the holy basil, considered sacred in India. And, uh, you know, getting water is difficult in these areas. They pay a lot for a pot of water. It's extremely expensive. So if you're watering five pots of tulsi, that is a bit surprising. So I asked her, I said, you had this lovely kitchen garden that you lost. Why do you have five pots of tulsi?" She said she prepared the, the pots to replace her kitchen garden, put, you know, the soil and kept everything ready and went to visit her daughter, her married daughter for a week. And came back, and some seeds of basil had flown through the air and germinated there. And she came, you know, she came back to find there were five pots sprouting tulsi. She said, "It's an uninvited holy guest. How can I turn this guest away?" So she's maintaining five pots. I mean, look at that connection to nature that she has. She's engaging with these plants as personalities, as guests that have come in, as holy as. Invited. I don't do this with my garden. I don't have a water problem. I have a large garden, and uh, but I'm much more practical. I tend to think of it in a much more uh, utilitarian perspective. But uh, here's somebody who has very little, and is in that very little, is engaging with that in, in such a generous and giving fashion. You know? So there are these generous and humbling stories that you get when I mean all of us get, I'm sure, when the field when you meet people, and none of that comes through in sustainability literature. All of it is full of techno fixes of uh, people as a problem, but technology as a solution or money as a solution or better economics as a solution or policy as a solution. All of these top down, you know, just throw this thing at the people and the people will magically transform their ways to be good people. But people are good people, I think. So, yeah, it's just sorry. I went off on a rant, but this is something that really bothered me in terms of what are we teaching these students when we come up with frameworks and what can be most relevant for them?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a resonant story and we'll link to that commentary piece uh, in the show notes for this podcast so everyone can can find that and read it as well. And one of the other things you mentioned is Is this focus on the community level and at least from my perspective when i look at the the mainstream news regular news um, but also a lot of the academic literature is this this there's basically only two narratives around sustainability solving sustainability problems one is kind of this top down we need more government policies we need more uh, international frameworks uh, to enforce people to do things more sustainably and the other is uh, individual action oriented right so reducing plastic (laughs) bag use or flying less or something like this and it kind of conveniently neglects this other level, which is the community level, um, and and having people to work together. And another piece that I I saw that you had written recently in the nature sustainability was the urban south and the predicament of global sustainability. Two questions that I want to follow up there. How has your work on urban commons brought focus back to the community level within cities? And then what is then unique about urban cities or global south cities compared to the global north?
1: So I think first to do that, I should step back a bit and uh, tell you how I started working on cities. Because a lot of that is sh- I think, shapes uh, the kind of research that I land up doing now. So I was working on forests and uh, in about 2006 or 7 I started working on cities, not as a researcher, though, as someone who lived in cities. I, I didn't plan for it to become a research focus at all. But uh, we moved to a peri-urban part of the city, built our house. My daughter was born in 2007 and uh, a number of different things happened. I was trying to look for plants for my garden and I couldn't find the plants that were to me very characteristic of Bangalore, which represented a certain you know way of planting trees and plants that are culturally very important to the city, things that you use for food, things that you use for daily worship, or things that you use which are culturally sort of with very sort of evoked the city very strongly and you couldn't find these in nurseries anymore the peri-urban part of bangalore like most peri-urban parts of indian cities looks extremely dysfunctional there are you know no footpaths no common spaces no places for people to walk or gather or uh, just just parts of the city that have grown way too fast for infrastructure to catch up with so there's a lake close to my house at that point, which was a large garbage dump. And uh, there was a citizen movement to, there was a group of people trying to work to restore the lake and reached out to me because Pinya was an ecologist, but I had never worked on lakes. So, I mean, I was as clueless as, all of us were clueless really on on what to do with this lake, but we knew that there was a government program to restore it and we all started working together. And um, so that was the second thing. And the third Thing that happened around the time was that my daughter was born, so in the end of 2007. And I started thinking about what kind of city she grew, she's going to grow up in. I'm, an, I'm a city kid. And the city I grew up in had a lot of space for nature. You didn't have to be a city kid and be divorced from nature. But it uh, if you look at at least growing up in peri-urban cities in India, it's very difficult to be a city kid and grow up in a world of nature. So that was a bit horrifying. And I was trying to think of what could one do. So, through this involvement in the lake and the involvement in a part of the city where I grew up, where my mother's house is, uh, where there was a lot of, there was a plant cutting of a lot of trees for the met- construction of the Bangalore metro, one of the uh, sections of the metro. And this is a very iconic part of South Bangalore, jayanagar where there's really old and uh, gorgeous canopy of trees on this very large street. It's, it's almost like walking into a green tunnel and they were going to cut down all of these trees for the metro. Of course, you need a metro, but you need it in this way by cutting down trees. So I had students, undergraduate students, who said they would go and map that place and look at all the trees that were being felled. And no surprise, we found that the government report of the number of trees to be felled was underestimating the number of trees. And we found that many more trees were going to be felled. There was a lot of citizen protest around that time about tree felling. And there was this citizen movement to restore this lake. And I got involved with both. And uh, that sort of, so that's where the the journey of documenting the city and uh, getting involved with urban ecology and making that trusted area of research sort of grew out of this. Because I said, if we're doing it anyway, we might as well document it more formally and write about it. But it started with a very different idea, right? It started as a resident of the city. And it started as a community thing because uh, there was a, lot, a large group working together. We all learned so much from each other and n- none of us had ever worked in the setting. So one of my friends who was who started the whole work on the lake, Priya Ramasubhan, is a documentary filmmaker. She makes films for BBC and National Geographic. But she wasn't coming into the lake as a documentary filmmaker. She later made a documentary about how we did the community restoration of the lake. But that's not how she came in. Similarly, I came in as an ecologist, but not from this angle. There's another friend who came in as an architect and did the planning of, you know, the public use of the lake, but uh, didn't come in using his architectural ideas, but came in as someone who's living there and saying, what kind of a space would I like to live in? So that entire process, I think, for us was a huge learning process. And if I look at the number of lake movements that sparked off from this over time, there were three really important lake restorations in Bangalore, uh, three lakes that are widely considered successful today. This lake is one of them. There are two others in different parts of the city. I really got to see how these lakes could be learning hubs for other communities because now there are so many lake groups across Bangalore and across different cities that reach out to these three communities constantly saying, you've done this before, give us ideas. And the people that got together in these lake communities, now that they know each other, they're energetic people, they have a lot of insight, they've developed leadership skills, they know the community, have gone on to tackle other issues, the traffic congestion issue, government schools and education, the uh, public health system, the garbage system, you know, so many things that they're working on. So I think, to me, it's been very natural to believe in the power of the community because, uh, I mean, There's a very famous paper, it's a lovely short paper, which is uh, says, plant a tree, ride a bike, and it's just critiquing the hell out of these individual-based sustainability solutions that you talk about. You know, so how much can you, if if we all take our own shopping bags, how much are we going to make a dent in the world's sustainability crisis? Very, very low, right? But I think that's a harsh critique, because if I look at a lot of these people who get involved in community action, that's probably where they start with individual transformation. You can't start sustainability action without some deep thought and personal individual transformation. So I think that's a first step. And I think some of, to me, some of this critique of, you know, sustainability solutions are misplaced when they target this, stop using a plastic straw. It's important to think of how much we use straws or we use bags and how much we fly, not to be very absolute or moralistic about it, but can we start some personal sort of deep searching within ourselves and see what we can do and what we can't do? And each of us in our own situations are going to have different reasons or different imperatives for what we can do and what we can't do, and none of us can do everything. But to stop at that personal transformation, I think, makes no sense. And the real power, I think Lynch Lynn Ostrom showed that a long time ago, and so have many others, that the real power of transformation is in the community. Because if the community gets together, it's not just that they can influence their own small part of the world, right, their own urban commons. But it's that community has political power, that community has organizational power, that community can go mobilize other communities, that community can go and call their elected representatives and demand certain things of them. And that creates systemic change. Bottom-up change, which is completely transformative in terms of its power, you know, to to say that people from, little people from the bottom up can make this large change. So that to me is, is really, especially if you're looking at things in the global south, that has to be the way because yes, you need government action, but that government action has to be in response to people's needs. It can't be something from the outside. Uh, it is, so, to, in response to your, but your second half of the question of what, what makes these urban commons in the, you know, in the cities of the global south different, I'd say they're much more commons focused in every way of life. So if you think of Indian cities or African cities or Latin American cities, uh, people really use them in so many, uh, use uh, public spaces in so many more ways than recreation or community meeting spaces, right? So, take this lake, really Lake, the lake that I was talking about, which is restored near my house, and the lakes around it. You have grazing. So, there are people who from the nearby villages who come in with their cows. You have cut grass and take it home for their cows. You have fishing. You have migrant workers who come in to wash their clothes. It's not legal, but they still, you know, they, they come in because they don't have any access for water. You have parts of the lake that are still used as public toilets because Again, these are migrant workers living in shacks. So they use these, you know, so lakes are important spaces as, uh, you know, for people to relieve themselves. You have uh, harvesting of medicinal plants around the lake, which are used for a number of home remedies and cures. So these kinds of users are alive today. And you have a lot of worship. If you go with, an, uh, we've gone for walks with uh, some of the original village communities. The lake has transformed. It looks like an urban lake anyway. It's got paved areas. People can go jogging and walking and wheel their kids in prams. And... But you talk to one of the women from the village around the lake. And for her, this is a sacred space and a completely different you know, imaginary space from what I can see. So she's telling you about her goddess here. That And they have a song that they prayed to the goddess and she can sing the song. They have a well there where 30 years ago, two villages fought and um, one village uh, hacked off the heads of some uh, another group of people and threw the corpses in and burnt them with tobacco leaves in the well. I'm looking at the well that she describes and there's a, there's a tennis court of a large apartment complex. But for her, it's the well and they don't go there at night because there are ghosts of dead people. You know, so this is a common space. It has ghosts, it has spirits, it has... Uh, Fish, it has uh, grazing material, it's, it's, and then you come in, if you come in with an urban planning focus for lake rejuvenation that you take it from a western city and you say you want paved jogging paths and an inner fence and an outer fence and uh, you want to ban fishing and grazing because uh, you think these are sort you of know, activities that a modern Indian city should not have, you're not dealing with the reality of these, the lived experiences of these people. So I think Indian cities, Brazilian cities, uh, cities in Africa are completely different. They they all have the same imaginary. That paper, as you know, was uh, the nature uh, uh, urban sustainability paper was co-written with uh, Eduardo And You hear him talking about Brazilian cities. They're the same. Was uh, written you know, with a colleague from uh, so Zume Bai, who works in Chinese cities. That's the same. And uh, Shoaib, who's been working on uh, cities in uh, Africa, and it's the same there, you know, it's, it. we had such a fun time discussing this paper because we are all drawing on very similar examples from our cities, but we also shared this general sense of frustration because how is it that all of the material on urban sustainability that you get from cities in the global north, which we use as models in the global south, pretend that these things don't exist, they just don't see this connection with nature, or they don't see cities as commons. Whereas for us, I think our cities are commons of, of a very different kind.
0: Yeah, I wanted to just read a small quote from the, the the abstract of that of that article. The second half of the abstract says, quote, cities in the global south have strong imperatives and unique but often overlooked capacity to innovate and experiment for sustainability. We call for a renewed research focus on urbanization in the south and suggest targeted efforts to correct structural biases in the knowledge production system. So... You you kind of outlined why some of the cities in the in the global South have have different types of, of perhaps problems but also uses than in, in areas of the global North, um, but then you say you know we need to correct these structural biases in knowledge production system for how we better understand these and put them into the scientific literature. Can you can you expand a little bit on on what you mean by this?
1: I'd be happy to, uh, and you'll have, probably have to get me to stop after time so it doesn't become a rant. But uh, you know we looked at so one of the things we did in the paper was looked at the top thousand cited papers if you look at the appendix so on sustainability in cities in the past 10 years so what what happens with the top thousand papers and uh, if you look at the top hundred of the top thousand it doesn't really change in terms of a pattern most of the top cited papers come from the global north they're written by scholars in the global north they focus on either global cities or global north cities and these are the cited papers. China is is an exception. China stands out because Chinese scholars write on Chinese cities and use their own frameworks to manage Chinese cities. So it's just, you know, it's a different, it, it completely stands out in the picture. But if you take China out and look at all the other global south cities, there there is, you know, all our literature clearly comes from the global north. These, the literature that is produced within these cities doesn't get cited. And the structural biases, I think, are many. I'll give you one, I think, very egregious example, which I'm now dealing with. It's a PhD student uh, who's writing on urbanization organization in uh, the Himalayan mountains and uh, submitted it to a journal. I will not tell you what journal because it's still being reviewed. But uh, over three rounds, uh, the editor in charge of the journal has written back saying he does not like the use of the word urban. It's a global south because he said that's a biased thing. Uh, that's a biased statement to make, and there is no evidence to show that global south cities are different from global north cities. That's one. Another thing that he, this editor is now asking for is that we get this manuscript professionally proofread because the English is not sufficiently, you know, off the standard that the journal needs. And uh, so she had to do this. I mean, she's a PhD student, so she's at the bottom of the pecking order, and she needs this paper, and it's a, it's a well-cited journal, so we will do this. But, uh, I mean, we, our English is perfectly good. We It does not need to be proofread. So, you know, this is, these are sort of silly little things, but they sting. But there are a number of other fundamental things. Each time you write a research paper from, let's say, a city like Bangalore, I cannot tell you the number of times that papers have come back saying, this is a case study, this is interesting, but maybe you should submit it to a regional journal. But a case study in a US city is always a global case study. A uh, uh, city, uh, sorry, a paper of global relevance, right? So these are, I mean, this is this is personal experience. But like I said, discussing with researchers from the global south, this is regular, repeated, everyday experience. I think for everyone. If you have a paper that comes in from let's say Chile or Brazil, and it might be a nationwide study of uh, protected areas and conservation in these. Will it make it to a mainstream journal like Science and Nature? It's more difficult. But if you have a paper that is a study of conservation across the U.S., no question that it's globally relevant. So there are a lot of structural biases. If you look at conferences and conference panels and plenaries across the world, it's so dominated by Global North researchers. So we were, in fact, uh, joking about this thing. Just like you have a lot of manuals being called out, could you have a word called a north cell you know, and, and see who, who sits on these panels and who's actually talking about cities from the perspective of the global south? Can you actually change any of these discourses? I think it's very difficult because a lot of even the research that is being done on the global south is often by academics based in the global north. I mean, which is fine. I'm not saying that you have to be in a city, but How many times do you see a global South researcher from one part of the world working on another part of the world? Let's say an Indian working on Brazilian cities or an Indian working on a US city. You don't see that. And so there are structural biases because no one will give you funding living in let's say in Brazil to work on um, Kenya, right? Brazilian funding will be to work on cities in Brazil or forests in Brazil. And so there are a lot of other structural biases. If you look at the Future Earth funding programs now, and Future Earth rep- replaced a lot of the other international funding, uh, you know, uh, not funding, but the international research programs like Diversitas or the Global Land Project, which is now the Global Land Program. And so the funding mechanisms are now different, but what Future Earth often relies on are calls which are across different countries, which are so from their national programs. So to give you one example, there was a coastal commons study that I knew someone else had applied for. And uh, the US, South Africa and India, if they wanted to do a collaborative project, South Africa was getting funded by its uh, National Science Foundation, India by its version of that and the US by their version of that. So the US funding was about 10 times as much as uh, the South African funding or the Indian funding. So obviously, you know, what, what research are you going to get? Who's going to drive the theoretical framework? Who's going to have the postdocs? The US partner. And so, who's going to be the PI, the US partner, and who's going to be the co-investigators who are providing data from the ground? South Africa and India. Where do the theories emerge from, and where does the, you know, where is the shaping of new, new frameworks going to come from, from the US? So, there are structural biases of many kinds, I think, that uh, you can really see from, from this very tiny, annoying bit of, you know, here, get a proofreading certificate because you don't know how to write English to a funding problem, which is much more deep and structural. But there's a lot. I mean, this is just, I've just got started, but I don't want to take over the podcast for this.
0: There's definitely room, I think, within the the realm of sustainability research or sustainability science to study the science system itself and to study how the process of knowledge creation shapes the narratives around sustainability that we have. And I think that's something that I'm also interested in um, and that others are starting to look at, particularly this North and South divide. Um, one other thing i wanted to to get into or ask you about is is more about your kind of day-to-day work uh, or your week-to-week work Uh, one of the questions is is balance between doing fundamental research and maybe that includes more supervising students phd students or however you want to see it and then applied research and practical actions and the other is then how do you incorporate students into your research and teaching i watched this nice uh, video that your university made of you giving an outline of your work and what you do, and you described a nice a nice program where you integrate students more into your, into your research.
1: Maybe I'll take the second question first and look at how we integrate students into our research. I think, especially for the urban research, because uh, we're living in a city, and again, since over the past six, seven years, since I moved to a university structure and I teach a lot and I have administrative responsibilities, it's harder and harder to take off into the forest, right? So, which is something I think, many of us uh, face in terms of time management so it's much easier to get students involved with a lot of the urban work and the forest work and i think some of the most interesting insights in anyway come from the students because uh, it's it's again the training issue i think it it is it's to get fresh ideas sometimes training or deep experience can be uh, a challenge deep experience is useful of course because it lets you see things that Others can't see, but uh, it's often an obstacle in terms of trying to come up with fresh ideas. So the students have some of have had always, I think, some of the most creative ideas and really steered our uh, you know group work into very different directions. So within the university, we have a masters in development program, and uh, as part of this, they do eight week independent projects in their second year, and they design these projects and they've been of all kinds, from uh, looking at uh, a smart city in uh, and you know the land acquisition for smart cities in different parts of india to looking at uh, how do people think of sustainability interventions in the textile sector to in all kinds of other things to looking at gender issues in agricultural innovations so for instance if you are looking about talking about drip irrigation uh, which is a very labor intensive uh, process why is it that the male farmers are always interested in this and say it's great, but the women farmers, their wives are complaining because they are the ones on their hands and knees scrubbing this setup with a toothbrush trying to get the mud and the soil out from the drip irrigation. You know, so the, you can see a sense of the range, right? So these students come up with all kinds of interesting things every year. And um, so that to me has been great. It's a lot of this doesn't make its way to research papers because, as I said, ours is a practice-oriented program. And uh, so students are really learning about how to think of monitoring practice or influencing practice in their work. And uh, But that's been, uh, I think, to me, especially if you're looking at sustainability and the, the number of dimensions that sustainability has, great, because I always learn a lot from the student projects. Um, and they open my eyes to fresh ways of thinking about new things. So that's been uh, a big plus of working in a university system. And PhD students, of course, you know, we don't have a PhD program, but uh, I collaborate with a number of different universities. So I'm on a lot of PhD committees. And uh, again, the kinds of work that they do is very, it's fascinating. And I think ecology Itself in India was, uh, so when I started doing my PhD in ecology, there were a handful of us working in a handful of institutions across India. There's now a very active student conference in conservation science held every year in Bangalore. And it's a sister event of the better known Cambridge SECS. now there are, you know, 1,500 students that come in across South Asia most of them from India. And it's just lovely to watch that because the community that was once a small handful, we all knew each other, is now huge and these students are doing all kinds of things. So that's been very, very nice to watch. But I'd still say we need a lot more because looking at the scale of problems we have globally, I think we just need a lot of new sustainability thinkers coming in. On the other question of practice, uh See, I think my, as I told you, the the impetus to enter urban sustainability was a very practice-oriented impetus. right? So that permeates a lot of the research that we still do even now. I don't, I mean, I I value theory-based research, and but I don't think myself that I would do anything that is urban that is purely theoretical unless I see a practical input, because that's not the motivation we came with. Also, uh, importantly, because now Azim Premji University funds a lot of this research thanks to a generous corpus that we have. That corpus is based for action is is intended also for action-oriented research. So I think that that with the university's philosophy, there's a lot of synergy with the way they see the world and the way I would like to see the world as well. And uh, so if you're using money to do a lot of this research and expensive uh, equipment or student time or researcher time. I'd rather that it's something that makes an impact. So the way we think about this is multifold uh, is I think a lot of the forest-based work that I did, my frustration with it was it was policy relevant, but I don't think it was terribly well designed. Because if you're doing work, let's say, on conservation, and you think it's policy relevant, but you haven't consulted the, the planners and asked them what they want done, and then you just, in the end, go them and go there and give them a report and say, hey, this is how you should be managing your park. They're very likely to walk away and justifiably so, because why should they take your inputs into consideration? You didn't ask them before you designed your study and went off and collected data for a year and analyzed it. Right? So in the city, we don't do that. We talk to a lot of stakeholders. We talk to, so give, to give you an example, one of the things we have an intern working on now is a citizen's guide to tree planting in Bangalore. What trees should you plant? Where should you plant? And a lot of people come and ask us this, we so said might be good to make a guide. But we're consulting botanical experts, we're consulting street vendors, we are consulting people in apartments and high end you know neighborhoods, we're also consulting people in slums. Everybody is an expert in terms of knowing what kinds of trees they want and what kind of trees, you know, street vendors will tell you what is most useful for them on this on the road and what is most likely to fall. That's an expertise they have just by living on the streets most of the day, and that's not something that a bot- botanist would know or a horticulturalist would know. So we are trying to work with these diverse groups. This is not something probably that is ever going to be publishable as a research paper. But I think it's something that is extremely important to get done and can drive forward action in a way nothing else can get done. So that's sort of the way we're designing a lot of our urban research, looking at what needs to get done and how do we do it. And uh, then trying to see how we communicate it, because communication is a large part of this. So can we communicate in languages outside English? One And can we be uh, nodes for other people who often get shut out our debates to have their voice heard. So we had a, a very interesting photo exhibition a few years ago where Marthe Dirksen, who was a student from the Fry University in the uh, Netherlands, came down for uh, one of her PhD chapters on lakes in Bangalore. And she was looking at uh, low-income settlements, slums around lakes, and how they perceive the lake and contribute to the lake. And one of the things that she and we were very clear about when she came in was that Yes, she was going to do this chapter on people living around lakes and very poor people in very difficult circumstances. But she didn't want to only consume this. It would give her a PhD, but what was she going to give back to people? So what we did was organized a photo exhibition where we took photos of these people. And from her interviews and uh, another friend of mine who's a photographer, Aarti Kumar Rao, who's a fabulous photographer of the commons in India. So they took these photos took stories of the people and we had this as a bilingual photo exhibition in English and in Kannada in the metro station in Bangalore, the main metro station, which has a huge amount of footfall, you know, so they you're not preaching to the converted, you have people who are walking out of the metro and coming into this photo exhibition. And what was very important was Marty then brought the people that she photographed to this exhibition. So they could see that the city which walks past them and ignores them constantly is photographing them and they're coming in the papers next you know, the next day because there's them standing next to their photographs telling the city what they think about the city and what the future city should look like. And all we were was a platform for them to actually reach the city with their lovely visions of, you know, Bangalore. And you get a sense then of that narrative shifting because people always say that, oh, you know, these slums next to the lakes are, in- are responsible for the degradation of the lakes, but they're telling you a story of the fact that they were once village communities that were next to the lake. And as long as they were losing the lake, it was fine. It was when the high end apartments came in with the plastic and the sewage systems that they started dumping into the lake where the lake got spoiled. And it's these people who have been trying to fix the lake. So, you know, can you shift that narrative? I guess that's a lot of what we're trying to do with the research. Can you, can you get under represented parts of the city to for their voices to be more obvious and can you shift this narrative a bit to be more inclusive so that's really how we design our, our research and um, that's how we design the out, outreach also part of it so everything that we write up as a paper is also written up in a newspaper and we try and do this in multilingual newspapers and uh, reach out to people and you know my colleague Seema for instance is trying to put together now um, um graphic kind of a book which is on one of the stories of groves in Bangalore and peri-urban groves which are getting decimated and we'll try and see now if we can translate that into Kannada and take that back to communities and use this to stimulate discussions around groves and what is their place in the new city of today. So I mean these are just some examples to give you a sense of the thinking I guess that uh, it's it's very different kind of work. It's It's really work with the problem is at the core and the idea of future action is at the core.
0: Yeah, do you get the sense or rather is your is your university system supportive of those types of research projects? You mentioned that some of that research is very important, for example, interviewing different types of people in the city about the types of trees, That they would like or that they need but it might not be published are the incentive structures within the university supportive of that time of work um have you found barriers to or have you run up into any challenges with with the university incentive structures to 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 push the work you want to forward
1: i'm fortunate because this is a university with a difference and this is a university that actually not just doesn't set up barriers but actually actively supports it by putting funding you know by providing funding for this Mm -hmm. so in terms of the incentive structures if you have a program that is linked to action you can get the funding to hire more postdocs hire more students hire researchers go off and do this work and uh, yeah so it it is a system that is extremely supportive of this but it's because it's a, it's a university that was set up with a philanthropic fund for stimulating action on various issues that in that are important to india's development right so so it was set up with a mandate it's part the azim pre university is part of the azim PMG foundation so it's really part of a larger foundation with a mission of bringing about change in India. That is unique. You know, I can't think of too many universities, forget in India, anywhere else in the world where this would be part of its incentive structure. So I think I'd I be very frustrated in a in a very traditional academic place because I would constantly have to make the argument for why you need to do this, but here I don't need
0: to. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And we'll link to the your, your page at the website and also the university webpage in the show notes. When you look forward in the next couple of years, and let's just say, hypothetically, if you had much more time on your hands, what types of sustainability-oriented projects uh, kind mm-hmm. of pique your interest or kind of pet projects that you, you would like to do if, if you if you had that time to, to kind of get deeper into into a topic? <laughs> Perhaps you have the time and you'll do it anyways, of course.
1: <laughs> no, I, I would guess to resource, right? Right. For right. all of us, I think. I think our biggest challenges as researchers in sustainability is to communicate our ideas to the public. So, the writing is, of course, one part of it, but if we had the skills to make documentaries or make short films or go out there and do street theater, or, you know, connect with people in different ways. So, uh, my own writing has changed a lot over time. You know, When I wrote my first book, Nature in the City, it was a much more academic book and I thought it was aimed at connecting with people, but the second book that I just have, Cities and Canopies, Trees in Indian Cities, with with a colleague, Seema, is, uh, I think, much more in the direction of where I want to take this, where you you look at real science or real research, but connect it in a way to people. We have recipes about trees. We have our own childhood stories of growing up with trees. We have games that people can play with trees. And we find people connect with this so much more than if you had just an academic story on the science and the ecology of why we need trees in cities. So, I think that to me, if we can take that into diverse Indian languages and uh, maybe learn or stimulate you know, ways of the other people, filmmakers and documentary makers, as I said, or street theater people, or you know, people who make uh, the you know, Netflix shows, mm-hmm. if one can work with them to work on sustainability challenges. Right. I think that's the scale of the problem. We need to transform a global imagination. I mean, look at climate change. It's there and it's hitting us, but uh, we go about our business every day, and um, we, I don't think we realize the magnitude of the issue. So how do we get to engage public consciousness and collective action with this at a global scale? I think we need to think out box. So, to me, if if I had the the time in the world, this is where I would do. This is <laughs> what I would do in the next few years.
0: Wow, certainly, but, uh, certainly worth yeah. worth it. I think.
1: This, I mean, I'm I'm getting there, but definitely not at the scale that I. I that I think I would
0: like to. Before we wrap up, was there anywhere or anything else you would like to say or or share before, before we end? And then also, is there a place where people can find you online or Twitter that you would like to, to, to share yeah. with everyone.
1: Actually, I'd like to ask you one question if you have the time for it. Sure. Because this is a lovely question. What would you do if you had the next two years just to do what you want to do on sustainability?
0: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, definitely this podcast and the the, the environmental social science network that uh, Michael Cox and I are trying to, to build here, and hopefully incorporate anyone, including yourself, who might be interested in, in helping in, in building this platform. It links also to what you said about science communication to really there is really a knowledge and, and action gap out there. And I think when you're in academia, you kind of realize that there's this constant production of knowledge and, and things coming out constantly, constantly and exponential growth and the amount of papers and knowledge coming out. But there's this huge filter and um, how that gets going into the public. And, and those filters are often structured around certain narratives which are limiting, uh, as you discussed before. Um, and not all the narratives are, are necessarily coming out and all, not all the knowledge which needs to be produced is helping to change those narratives for, for how the public engages. So I, I think things like this platform, like the Environmental Social Science Network, uh, things which help connect academics within the academic system to help try to transform and, and enable some of that those filters to be taken down so the general public can, can better understand sustainability issues is, is one thing. And Another thing for me personally would be more environmental education and sustainability education for kids at the primary school level. Mm-hmm. That's fairly critical for you, you'd mentioned it for, for your students at the various bachelor and master's level. But I think also right. getting down in, into the more primary level of school to have that more of a fundamental part of, of education, connecting with the environment, connecting with the community um, should, should be, be valued.
1: Because, yeah, 20 years from now, these are going to be the people that's, that are going to tackle the world and the problems, yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. So I mean, that's that's where I see it personally. And at the moment, we're 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 recruiting as many people who are interested to to come onto the podcast and, and talk about their experiences, but also to to engage with with the Environmental Social Science Network. And we want the network to be a platform for which people can use it to help their projects grow, so they can add their projects into into part of our network. And that's something Michael and I will will probably discuss further on some further podcast mm-hmm. episodes.
1: That sounds like a lovely plan. I think we should all just. <laughs> Take two years off and do do what we want to, and then get back to our work.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so too. That would that would be yeah. awesome.
1: This is great. Uh, thank you so much for having me on this show. I love these questions. And uh, if people want to contact me, you can Google me for my university website. It's uh, and uh, for more recent stuff that I do, look at me, look for me on LinkedIn at uh, Harini Nagendra and Twitter at at Harini Nagendra H A R I N I N A G E N D R A one word. I'm, I'm out there. I'm happy to receive emails and talk about work. And uh, I think this network is a great way of getting people together. I've certainly learned a lot from the podcast that I've listened. To.
0: Yes. Well, thank you, Harini. And we'll certainly we'll link to all of the the different papers that we talked about in this episode and also uh, to your university page. So thank you again so much. It was a pleasure to hear your your experiences and perspectives. And hopefully we can connect again, maybe in person someday, or maybe again for, for another podcast later on.
1: That would be lovely. Thanks so much. Yeah.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on apple podcasts spotify and stitcher and can also be streamed from our website this podcast is part of the environmental social science network for more information about the network and how to get involved please visit our website www.essnetwork.net thank you for supporting the podcast